In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts as we begin a new session of the Adult Bible Study Program. We ask you that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to what it is that you want us to hear, and that we hear and obey. So give us the grace and the strength to open our minds. We ask your blessing on our efforts on this session and all of the following sessions. So we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Good. Well, let's get into the, the Gospel of Matthew. But before we can actually get into the, the Gospel of Matthew, I feel that there is some basics that we have to cover. And some of you will say, oh, here we go again. Yeah. But it's important that we set up a foundation on what we will be talking about. Because to start in the middle, it's like building a house beginning with the second or third floor. And we really need to have these basics. And I'm going to read this. I don't generally like reading anything here. I'm not the greatest reader. Uh, but I want to read because we'll stop occasionally through this and do some more explanation. And if you don't understand, please raise your hand and let me know that so that we can explain it to you as we go along. All right? So uh, if you will turn to the page immediately behind the flyer cover here and read with me. Now, the reason I put this part in writing is because it is a foundation information, and I would like you to read it again and again and again so that you really get to understand, all right? So, before we get into the Gospel of Matthew, we have to understand a few basics in order to pull it all together. The most important basic is God's plan of salvation. Now, some of you, as I've just said, might say, oh, here we go again, because I've read this or I've brought it up many times before, but it is something that you cannot really uh, just set aside. And I feel that this is uh, a basic that we should never forget. Many people are not aware of God's plan. They think that things just happen as they did, but that is far from the truth. In reality, nothing God did or does, or will do, is by chance or just happen. Everything that God did, does, and will do is within this plan and will not change. And a reference to support that statement is in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. Now, as we've all heard, God is perfect and has no needs, right? And that's a true statement. But being perfect love, which God is, automatically has a need connected. And that need is to share that love with someone who can reciprocate, who can return love that God has given us. And therefore, God created mankind in order to share his love with mankind the only part of his creation that 
can love in the same way that God loves us. In other words, mankind is the only one, the only part of God's creation that can return God's love in the same way that God loves us. And that is what we call made in the image and likeness of God. Not a visual image. Everyone thinks that, well, if we are made in the image and likeness of God, can I look in the mirror and see God? Well, yes and no. All right, part of God is there. But it is a spiritual image, not a visual image. All right. We are made like God because we have an intellect, a meaning. We can talk and reason and respond to, glo- to God's love or withhold love. And that is what sin is, the withholding of love that we were made to give. The important point. So God created mankind and set them in a perfect place, the Garden of Eden, which represents heaven in an allegory. With everything to satisfy mankind's needs, even knowing ahead of time that mankind would fall by sinning because of bad choices. However, God loved his creation and did not want mankind to suffer, and so he had a plan B. Sin came, of course, and you all know the story of Adam and Eve and the apple tree. Now, it wasn't because they ate an apple that God punished them. Rather, the sin was a voluntary choice that they made to disobey God and do what they wanted. This story is an allegory to give us some idea of how sin entered the world that was previously all pure and Perfect. And therefore, God had to punish the man and the woman for their disobedience, and he expelled them from the Garden of Eden, or heaven, because God and sinful mankind cannot live together. In another important point, God and sinful mankind cannot live together. And that is why we have purgatory. But I don't want to get into that subject right now. Remember that God made it perfectly clear that um, we are not, to, uh, that the man and the woman, that is, Adam and Eve, were not to eat from that special tree. So they cannot say, well, the devil made me do it. <clears throat> And this is called setting boundaries, and we all need boundaries. At this point, mankind did not have any way to make amends for their sin or bad choices. And if they died, they would be separated from God forever. Therefore, God in his infinite wisdom and love needed a plan to help mankind make amends for their bad choices and regain the privilege of his love and company. And this is where plan B comes into play. Plan B is what we call God's plan of salvation. This plan required mankind's cooperation and participation. When we say salvation, 
we mean that mankind has to be saved from his bad choices willingly. God does not force anyone to do anything against their free will status. But he also lets us know that there is only two ways to go, God's way to heaven or mankind's way, the highway to damnation. No exceptions. Okay. As we said before, purgatory is a, a separate situation. Okay. Now, plan B is briefly, but importantly, mentioned in the book of Genesis with a promise of a redeemer in the form of the offspring of a woman. The earthly beginning of this plan is with the establishment of the Jewish nation beginning with Abraham and the covenant that God makes with him and renews down through the ages through Moses, David, the prophets, and other important persons, which I will call God's partners because these were the leaders that were chosen by God for specific purposes or roles in his plan. The purpose of developing a nation such as Judaism was to establish a community that would be a role model to the rest of the world population through whom God could speak to everyone because his love extended to everyone. In other words, the Jewish people were not chosen to be a special uh, community excluding everyone else. They were to be a community that was to be a model that would reflect out to everyone else. Unfortunately, the Jewish people saw them as being privileged and chosen exclusively and therefore chose not to open themselves to other nations. They became selfish and sinful to the extreme. Just read the second book of Kings or Psalm 81, their own writings, to see the extent that this sinfulness went. In Old Testament times, there are three occasions when God severely punished his chosen people to try to bring them back uh, under control and back into his good graces, but they refused. These three times were the wandering in the desert under the leadership of Moses, the Assyrian conquest of the northern half of Israel in the 8th century BC, and the Babylonian conquest of the southern half of Israel, or Judah, in the 6th century BC, the Babylonian exile. With the collapse of the monarchy and the waning of the prophets and the continuing demise of the Jewish people, Jewish people's faithfulness to God, God had to implement the next step in his plan, the coming forth of the promised Redeemer. This promised Redeemer was part of God's plan all along, as mentioned in the first part of the book of Genesis. However, the groundwork had to be laid before it could happen. There had to be a waiting audience, a foundation of beliefs, and a people to receive it before the next step could begin. The time was here, and the next step was accomplished through the Jewish people 
imperfect as they were. The time had come. But what was the redeemer? Pardon me. What was the redeemer to do? And what was he to redeem the people from? The problem was a need to resolve the breach that had come between God and his people. Sin causes a separation or a breach, an alienation between God and mankind that must be resolved before man can again approach God freely. Therefore, in the Jewish tradition of that time, a sacrifice of sufficient quality had to be made, but what was of sufficient quality to dissolve the breach of all the sins of mankind? Nothing that mankind had or could do within himself was sufficient for this purpose. And therefore, God in his infinite wisdom was now prepared to give mankind something that was sufficient worth, was sufficiently worth to make restitution. It was a gift of himself. To support that, see John 3.16, which says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, with all of that said, this is where the Gospels now begin. But before we get into that, are there any questions? Is there anything here that you didn't understand or question? Don't feel bad if you um, don't agree with me. I might just give you a D on your report card, but <laughs> nevertheless, uh, I, I do like to hear another side if there is one. So you're welcome to. Yes, Vince. I'm sorry, Vince, would you say that again? Uh, well, yes and no. Vince said that as we pass on, in other words, when we die, we will see God as a spirit, not as a human being. Um, frankly, we don't know because nobody has ever come back to tell us. Uh, but you have a point there. God is a spirit. God has no human uh face or image as we think of it. Jesus did, yes, because Jesus became a human being. Uh, but that is a little different. So well, remember his human body was assumed into heaven. Okay? And of course, he has appeared to several people in the early days and, of course, he had to appear as a human being. Otherwise, we wouldn't have recognized him. Okay. Yeah. Yes, Madge? Well, why would we have to see him? We have his feelings, his spirit with us anyway. Well, I think that we will see him, but it will be in a different way. All right? Whether it's in a spiritual form 
uh, or human form, we have no way of knowing. But it's an interesting point. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry? Uh, the second page on the front page. Or? Oh, obviously they didn't believe that because they didn't obey it. And they still don't. Uh, you know, there's many good Jewish people. I, I am not criticizing them. Uh, in fact, I have some good Jewish friends. I'll tell you a little story at a later date uh, about one of them in particular, which always amuses me. Um, but they are still very exclusive and very cultural. And they hold that very dear. In fact, the Jewish faith outside, you know, is sort of developed into three different faiths, you might say, the Orthodox, the Conservative, and the Reform. Uh, it's the only, only the Orthodox that really has any religious faith left. The conservative and reform is pretty much cultural and not spiritual. Again, I don't wish to put anyone down, uh, but you have to face facts. And as I pointed out right here, the Jewish writings that is, the books of Kings, the second book of Kings, and Psalm 81, as well as many others, are Jewish writings. And they themselves have criticized themselves, but yet they don't do much about it. Any other questions? All right. So, let's go on to the New Testament. Uh, before we do that, have any of you ever thought about why do they call the Old Testament the Old Testament? And obviously, if there's an Old Testament and a continuation, that would be the new one, right? Can you think of a better name or uh, designation for each of these divisions of the Bible? Okay. Anyone else? I'm sorry? Uh, okay. But there's something... Yes, Diana? Yes, and yes, that's much closer uh, to what they really are. Did you have a... Right, that would be that would be accurate as well. But let me offer something here. Gotta erase this. I'm sure you've all had a chance to read this. I I would like a title if I were redoing this 
I would like a, a title that really speak to the essence of what this book is. And this is what I think it would, it would be. I don't mean to block this out for you. Okay. But the Old Testament really is the the book of the promise the promise of salvation and if that is true then the New Testament No, the book of fulfillment of that promise. Does that make sense? What God is promising is, as I've just read, the idea of a way to get out of the problem of what sin is. And if sin alienates us from God, and God cannot accept uh, sinful people into heaven, then there's got to be a way out. And that is what the promise is, to give us a way out eventually through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Because, as I said in that write-up, mankind has nothing of itself that they could give back to God to make up for sins. And so God had to give us something that was perfect in order to it be sacrificed according to the old Jewish culture in order to relieve the breach that was formed by mankind's sins, not just the Jewish people, but all mankind. And so the Old Testament is that promise and a way of understanding that promise, and the New Testament is a book of fulfilling that promise. I hope that makes some sense. Now, getting a little bit more specific, the New Testament is made up of 27 books, the four Gospels, 13 letters, an occasion of a history such as the Acts of the Apostles, uh, a special book all by itself called the Book of Revelation, and there was one or two others in there. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. Can you all hear me with this thing on? All right. So we are going to be spending most of this 10 weeks on the subject of the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to do it a little differently. In the past, we've studied Matthew on a chapter-by-chapter -chapter basis and kind of ignored the other uh, writings, the other Gospels and the other writings. This time, we're going to take it by primary uh, subject matter. All right. And next week you'll see that in a little more detail when we get into the subject of John the Baptist and the 
40 days that Christ spent in the desert in a retreat. And why? We'll get into those rather deeply. And John the Baptist is mentioned in all four Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. In fact, he is the only person outside of Jesus that is mentioned in all four Gospels and the um, Acts of the Apostles. And we'll explain, and our focus will be on those two subjects, even though we will touch base on other parts of the Bible in our discussion on John the Baptist. And there will be a paper similar to this one uh, on the basics that I read this morning. But let's get into the Gospel of Matthew. Well, first of all, why are there four Gospels? Anyone explain that or anyone have a good idea? Have you ever wondered why there are four Gospels? Right. And that's a very good point to start. If there was only one gospel, regardless of how good it was, you'd have a number of people saying, eh, anybody could have wrote, written that. How do we know he's read? right? Of course, we would never say, how do we know she is right? Yeah. Because in Jewish writing, women, uh, women writing at that time were not accepted. Okay. Uh, But the reason is, as Dick just pointed out, God in his infinite wisdom inspired four Gospels to be written. Three are what we call synoptic Gospels because they are sort of a biography, not exactly in the way we think of biographies, but they are pretty much a biography of this man called Jesus of Nazareth, who turned out to be God. The fourth, which is the Gospel of John, takes it from a different point of view. Remember, John was very young when he was an apostle at the time of Christ and lived to be an old uh, man, or elderly man, I should say, and wrote this gospel from a totally different point of view because he had more time to pray about it and think about it and rationalize uh, all of that he knew and experienced with Christ. So his gospel is written from the point of God becoming man for our benefit and why. So you had three were written in the form of a man, Jesus of Nazareth, developing this faith and then turning out to be God. John is taking it from the other direction of saying this is God who loved mankind so much that he came to earth to satisfy the basics and the needs of that sacrifice that only God himself could give. So that's why we have four Gospels. The other one, hitting on what Dick said, is that there we really have to understand what was going on in the first century. There was a 
very tumultuous century of people going in all directions. First of all, you had the Hellenistic influence, that is the Greek influence that was being forced upon <coughs> excuse me <clears throat> being forced upon the Jewish people ever since the third uh, century BC or fourth century BC. Uh, in fact, in the second century BC, there was a major war called the Wars of the Maccabees uh, that finally ended up in driving out uh, the Greek rulers that had uh, taken over Israel or conquered Israel under the auspices of Alexander the Great. And after Alexander the Great died, there was a division of uh, his spoils, you might say, uh, into ten different locations, and uh, five of those were the Seleucid kings in Asia Minor and uh, Europe, well, what's Asia Minor and Europe today, and the other five was in North Africa, and they became the Ptolemy kings. All right, well, in the fourth century, um, you had Antiochus IV, one of the Seleucid kings, try to enforce Greek culture on all of the Jewish people as well as everyone else in all of the areas even surrounding Israel. Well, a lot of people took to it because it was uh, interesting, it was tantalizing, uh, it was somewhat promiscuous, uh, it was much more outgoing than the strictness of the Jewish people's rules and laws, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so you have that influence going on, extremely uh, beneficial in some ways and extremely harmful in others. The other thing, too, is that uh, particularly after Paul's writings uh, showed up in the middle of the first century A.D., and uh, in Romans particularly, and a few others, uh, Paul was telling the people that they didn't have to belong and obey the Torah uh, to the extreme as they were doing, and that allowed people to uh, start thinking and wavering and so forth and so on. So you had a lot of different things going on in that first century because of Paul's letters and the idea that the Jewish rulers, the temple rulers, were losing control to these people called Christians, uh, they started a persecution. It was the Jewish people who started the persecution against the Christians in the first century AD. The Romans only came in to squash this fight that was going on by different sects of the Jewish people over in Israel, and they didn't care whether they were Christians or Jews. They just wanted to kind of settle it down. Unfortunately, that escalated into a major uh, war uh, and caused a destruction of the temple and Judaism in general in the year 70 AD. So there was a lot of things going on. And the idea of having four Gospels was necessary to 
go include all of the people of many of these different factions. Matthew's Gospel was written from a strictly Jewish point of view, but it was written by somebody who was well-educated and well-versed in writing. Uh, we attribute that to Matthew because the information probably came from Matthew. It was probably not written by the man called Matthew, but what difference does it make who it was written by? It was important because it had something to say to convince the Jewish people that Jesus was fulfilling, as we said up there, fulfilling the promises uh, of the Old Testament. That was the main focus, and that is what we will be studying uh, this time around, that the focus of the Gospel of Matthew is on trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah and is fulfilling the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament referring to the Messiah. But many of the converts of the first century were not Jewish. They were from all of the other surrounding nations and primarily Greek-speaking people. Remember, Greek was the predominant language of the elite for people other than the Jewish people. Obviously, the Jewish speak, people spoke Hebrew or Aramaic, and everyone else uh, who were educated spoke Greek. And so Luke's gospel is appealing to those people. <coughs> Excuse me. Those people, that is the Greek-speaking people, would not understand many of the things that Matthew writes in his gospel. Because if you are familiar with Matthew's gospel, quite often he will uh, say at the end of some long speech, this was done to fulfill such and such that was said in the Old Testament. Well, that wouldn't have been, make any sense to the Greek-speaking people. So, Luke's gospel is the one that appeals to those Greek-speaking people. Right? Mark's gospel was probably the first one to be written. Yes, Howard? Didn't a lot of Jews escape to Greece to avoid persecution? That's who they were trying to talk to? Yes, in many ways. Not only Greece, but to North Africa as well. Uh, so you had people spreading out after as I said, <coughs> the, Caesarean, the Assyrian conquest and the Babylonian conquest, you had people running away. And so they would establish their own communities. They remained Jewish, but they picked up the language that was in those particular locations. Excuse me. Mark's gospel was probably the first one to be written. Remember that all of Paul's letters were written before the gospels. And it was, well, let, let's go back a little bit. The Old Testament 
was not written in its present form until around the 5th century BC. It was not started, uh, or the old, the old Testament scriptures were not started as holy scriptures. They were started back around the 9th or 10th century BC, probably encouraged by King Solomon. And they were started as histories, the history and the culture of the people. Remember, it was through the histories, the written histories of people that gave them identity. And when one country would overrun and conquer another country, one of the first things they would do is to destroy all of their records, which meant that they were destroying their identities. Jewish people had no identities up until the 10th or 11th century, and uh, therefore they didn't have what was really necessary until Solomon came along with the beginning of the Jewish monarchy with Saul and then David and then Solomon, which is considered the golden age of Judaism. And so it was, we believe, Solomon who encouraged the Jewish people to start writing down their histories. Well, you had a small group in the south and then another small group in the north. And they were writing down pretty much their histories as they knew and understood it. And as time went on, if somebody felt that that wasn't correct, they would change it. And it wasn't until the 5th century, after the Babylonian captivity uh, ended, that somebody brought all of these histories together and ended up in pretty much what we have today, with a few exceptions that weren't written until later. I want to, don't want to get into the subject of the missing letter or books of the Old Testament. Uh, that's for another day. Uh, but in the New Testament, things were a little different. They looked at not only their histories, but the history of one person. That is Jesus Christ. So the history is that developed into what is considered the New Testament scriptures was really centered on Jesus right from the beginning. It was Luke, I mean, sorry, it was Mark who started writing down these so-called histories after the letters of Paul began to be circulated and people began to realize that there was a lot more to this new religion called Christianity um, or the new way or the good news, all of which was uh, being used to indicate the faith that emanated from Jesus of Nazareth. <coughs> but Mark's gospel is the shortest because it does not talk about Jesus' early life. Uh, it does not give you a lot of detail. 
For example, next week we'll be talking, as I've said earlier, about the um, 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert and the uh, baptism uh, or John the Baptist. Mark uses or, or gives us that whole synopsis uh, in four or five sentences. Four or five sentences, you know, about this much. Uh, but it's enough to, you know, hold things together. Anyways, Matthew's gospel then was developed based on what Mark had already written. And so was Luke. Why reinvent the wheel? But Mark, or rather Luke and Matthew decided that there was more needed. And so they added the infancy narratives uh, and a lot more detail that they uh, needed to convince their respective audiences. That is, the Jewish audience by Matthew and the Greek audience by uh, Luke. <coughs> now, both of those Gospels, Matthew and Luke, contain the infancy narratives, the early life of Jesus. Why do you suppose Mark and John do not contain those stories at all? No reference to them whatsoever. Anyone have an idea? Well, you have to remember what was the culture of the time. At the time, anyone who was not of age, and of age, like we talk about 21 being sort of the coming of age, uh, was the year 30. So a person that was younger than 30 was not really uh, reliable enough, mature enough, adult enough to be accepted. And therefore, Mark, I mean, yes, Mark and John picked up at the time of Jesus' baptism, which tells us that Jesus was about the year 30, or the age of 30, when he was baptized by John. And we'll get more into that next week. So that is why Mark and John do not talk about the early life of Jesus. But the early life is is very important. Uh, Jesus, as we all know the story, we just celebrated Christmas here, so I'm sure you all understand and know the story. But have you ever stopped to think about why did God come to earth as a baby, born in a stable, you know, born in the lowest form or place that anybody could be born. Why? Why couldn't he come, you know, like a knight in shining armor and on a white horse or whatever? This is what the Jewish people wanted. Their idea, their concept of a Messiah was somebody who was going to ride into town and root out the Romans, get rid of them, 
and restore Israel to the prominence that it had back at the time of King David. Not so, Christ. Not so. He came, why? Amen. Yes, that's correct. He came because he represented mankind and had to develop and live according to mankind as anyone else. He was taking our place. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son to be the perfect sacrifice that mankind needed to dissolve the breach that was caused by sin. And therefore, Jesus had to be a human being with all the faults and problems and so forth a young person had to experience. And therefore, according to what it says in uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, that Jesus set aside his divinity, totally set it aside. Not that he gave up his divinity. He was always both divine and human right from the moment of conception. But he set that totally aside by putting it in a closet and had to go through life as any other child because he was representing us and totally representing us not only to reveal who the Father was, not only to reveal the fact that we had a greater responsibility, uh, each and every one of us, to broadcast the teachings of God through Jesus Christ, uh, but we had other things to do. And we could not be an exclusive community. So he, he, Jesus, had to understand and develop that understanding as any other human being did. It wasn't until the baptism in the Jordan, which we'll talk about next week, uh, that his divinity returned in order to give him the authority to say and do the things that he did. During his 30 years as an early young person, uh, there were no miracles, there was no teaching, there was nothing in what we would consider uh, the same <coughs> way of life that he led after his baptism. And uh, I know many of you will have in your mind the thought, well, when Jesus was 12 years old and got lost in the desert, in the desert, in the cha in the chapel, uh, you know, in the temple, uh, he said to his mother when they asked him why he was doing such things, you know, what you doing this thing to us? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Remember they were Jewish. He says, did you not remember that I had to be about my father's business? Well, any firstborn Jewish boy could say that because of the dedication that every firstborn male 
was made according to that culture as a gift to God and God was then considered his father. So don't take that statement serious like Jesus knew he was God at 12 years old. No. Jesus set all of that aside and did not know. Now, obviously, obviously, Mary and Joseph knew that there was something unusual about this child because they were told that right in the very beginning that he was going to be special and dedicated uh, toward a specific mission. Uh, but they didn't quite understand all of that. But they encouraged him to understand and to try to develop an understanding of the scriptures to see where he fit into all of that. So obviously, he was a very well-educated, at least in scriptures, at the time of 12 and beyond that. Now, there's a Hollywood movie, and always beware of Hollywood movies, uh, that says Jesus went off and went to... Um, went to, um, oh, I forget the name of the place in uh, Asia. Uh, where the Dalai Lama is, what's the? Tibet. Tibet, yeah. And was in the monastery for many years and all of that. There is nothing. Nothing written that uh, supports any of that. And I just heard uh, recently, not once but twice, by a given priest that said uh, Mary was well-educated in the temple and knew all of the Psalms by heart. Well, Mary lived in Nazareth. The temple was in Jerusalem, which is 85 miles away. There was no high-speed rail at that time. No, 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 no. There's nothing to support that. So you got to be a little careful when you hear uh, some of these unusual stories. All right. Nevertheless. <coughs> Anyways, uh, I got off the subject a little bit, but the whole idea of Jesus' early life was really to understand humanity and understand the <coughs> trials and the tribulations that all human beings go through in the growing up stages. Yes, Dick? Another reason for Jesus coming as a baby is because it was, <coughs> it was forecasted in the Old Testament. Yes. And the question I sort of have, well, I'm sure, it was forecasted in the Old Testament because God implanted the thought of what was going to happen, inspired it. But it has to, there has to be a continuity between the Old Testament and Jesus. Yes. The, yes, what, what Dick is saying is that back in the book of Genesis, after, man, after uh, Adam and Eve is expelled from the garden because of their sin of disobedience, 
God promises that there will be uh, a way out or a solution to their problem and that they won't be uh, banished forever. And he's talking about mankind, not about two specific people. Um, and he's saying that the woman and her son will be the way out. And of course, that is what Dick is referring to. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. The point is that John took, that is, the apostle John took Mary into his home at Jesus' command and had the opportunity to learn. But it was not this uh, job uh, or his assignment to add the infancy narratives uh, to his gospel. Yes. Yes. Well, yes, but you got to remember the whole concept of the Messiah at that time was in the minds of the Jewish people that was entirely different than the way it turned out. They were looking for a knight on shining armor, you know, a, a man uh, with a lot of power and fancy robes and armor and all of that. Uh, a little baby? Uh-uh. So Mary knew, as you just pointed out, yes, that he was special. He was called the Son of God and would save his people from their sin. But how this was all going to come about she had no way to understand that. She didn't have the background to put it all together at that time. But remember, it says in Luke's Gospel, after they find him in the temple at the age of 12 or 13, that Mary kept all of these things in her heart and pondered them, etc., and didn't come out until... Luke wrote his gospel. So you're, you're right in as far as knowing, but knowing and understanding are not exactly the same thing. Okay? It took a while for them, for her to put it all together. Yeah. And again, remember, anything that women said in those days, pardon the expression, uh, was, was not really given a lot of... Uh, Credence. Okay. Any other comments? Uh, 
Yes, but she's been under a lot of pressure because, after all, she wanted her son to grow up and be special. It was just a lot of hardship on her. Well, she bear, Mary had to bear with a lot of hardship right from the beginning because, remember, she became pregnant and she wasn't yet married. I mean, and, you know, that was a big no-no in those days. Today we sort of say, eh, you know. Well, then but, she had to really be careful how she raised Jesus, didn't she? Amen, yes. Uh, you know what swaddling clothes are? You know, they, they wrapped in swaddling clothes. Swaddling clothes are rags. Rags. They didn't have, you know, the cute little things that they have today or, you know, Paper diapers and all of that. Yeah. No. Mothers today have have it made pretty easy compared to, you know, what Mary had to go through. No, no pediatricians, no uh, baby bottles, you know, or anything like that. Um, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Well, now, now be careful. No one knows exactly. Uh, we've heard uh, all forms of extremes about how old Mary was. And it was common for young girls to be married, you know, by the parents. Uh, not married to the parents, but being arranged, you know, marriage by the parents. But don't, don't overdo it as far as the age of Mary. Yes, oh, yeah. Susan, did you have a question? Yes, yes, especially uh, after the birth. You know, the visitation had to come from Mary to Luke and so forth and so on. Yes. So, well, have we established enough beginnings, you might say? Is there anything that we didn't cover? It's important that we understand. Matthew and Matthew and Mark. Luke. Well, let's take the last item first. Dick is pointing out some differences between the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke regarding the infancy stories. One of them is having to do with when the Magi, now let me just digress for a moment. Uh, the Magi is a very common word applied. It doesn't have a meaning, a specific meaning, 
we have no knowledge of whether these uh, men were astrologers or kings or what they were. All right. Uh, people have put all kinds of thoughts and they've even given them names, but there is no names mentioned in any of the scriptures. So the names that you hear for the three wise men, we have no knowledge for sure that there was even three. The scriptures do not mention three. They mention three gifts, but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that there were three men only. Okay, We don't know what they were. But anyways, what Dick just said was in Luke's gospel, uh, they talk about the Magi finding Jesus at a house, whereas we know from Matthew's gospel that Jesus was born in a stable. Well, obviously, he was born in a stable because there was no room for them in the inn because of Caesar Augustus' edict that everybody had to return to their family uh, place of life. Uh, and, of course, that meant that there was a lot of people traveling. The hotels and so forth were very crowded. <clears throat> but we don't know how old Jesus was by the time the Magi got there. So it wasn't necessarily, you know, three days later. Uh, it could have been a much longer period. Sure, that's right. So there was, you know, a, a time period uh, of unknown length. So we don't know how old Jesus was when they had to flee to Egypt. Now, that brings up another point. We know that Augustus Caesar, who called this uh, census in the first place, died in the year four. BC. So how could Jesus be born in year 1 AD if he and his family were subject to this whole idea of going to uh, Bethlehem for the census? It was because the Gregorian calendar that replaced the Julian calendar in the 13th century AD was off by approximately seven years. So Jesus would have to have been born around the year 7 BC in order to meet all of these other time requirements. Okay? But it really doesn't make a heck of a lot of difference. You know, we all and the entire world uses the same calendar now. But that is another little hiccup, you might say, in trying to establish what it says in the scriptures with reality. That's right. Yes. That's that's right. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, and, and that supports what I just said. There was a time frame in there that we have no way of knowing. You see, in Jewish writings, time was not important. Let me give you another little example. I always kind of cringe when I hear this one uh, because I've tried to do something similar to it and it doesn't work. Uh, way back at the time of Abraham. Abraham and his family were nomads and they camp or, were camped out even though they were fairly well off and so forth. And these three uh, visitors come by. And the, so Abraham welcomes them in. I'm cutting the whole story a little short here. And he tells uh, Sarah to make some uh, bread and slaughter the, the fatted calf. How can you slaughter a calf which takes a great deal of time and effort and cook it and prepare it and all of that in order to serve to your three friends? Well, you know, it, it is like, you know, sending Sarah to the butcher shop to get some cold cuts and, and you know, the sandwiches were all ready. Well, you know, Time didn't have a great deal of meaning as far as uh, getting to the point of the story. So you have to remember that whenever you read Old Testament scriptures or even the early parts of New Testament, time just didn't have a lot of sense. All right. Yes? Well, yes, but Matthew was also an apostle. Well, probably not, probably not. But the information came from that gospel, that apostle. Yes. Luke came. Luke came later, but Luke was a very close friend of Peter. And Peter, of course, obviously was with Christ all the time. Yes, Mark was is referred to in uh, the letters of Paul as John Mark. Also, if you recall, at the uh, time that Jesus is arrested at the Garden of the Eden, I mean the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, at the time of his uh, crucifixion or just before, there was one of the apostles that. Uh, followers or disciples that ran away naked. Most people assume that that was Mark. All right. So although he was not an apostle, he was a very close follower. Yeah. And he got, he became a very close follower of Peter. Yeah. And is referred to as John Mark in uh, the letters of Peter and Paul. No, no, that's that that may be true in a direct sense, but uh, they were not 
Well, no, I would disagree with that because of Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? I hope you like this kind of teaching rather than reading, you know, chapter by chapter. Uh, and next week, like I said, our focus will be on two main subjects. The time that Jesus spent in the desert and why did he spend this? What is it intended to mean? What does it mean to us today? And the gospel and the idea of who John the Baptist is. Now, there are some listings in your handout of John the Baptist being mentioned in all four Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles. Well, you're welcome to read all of those. Uh, next week, what we'll try to do is bring them all together and look at that so that when we cover areas in these other parts uh, of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we won't uh, refer too much to the John the Baptist because we've already covered that. So we'll be taking major portions of these Gospels and discussing them at a deeper level than we would or could if we just went chapter by chapter. Any problem with that? Any yeah. Yes, Vince. After all the miracles that Jesus did was performed after his baptism, that was the beginning of his ministry, and we'll get into that subject next week. Okay. All right. <laughs> If there are no other questions, um, let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for allowing us this time. We ask your indulgence and your help in understanding the subjects that we discussed today and carry them forward as we discuss various other subjects in the following weeks. So we ask your blessing on our efforts in all of this. We just give you praise and thanksgiving in all things. In Jesus' name.